we just want the old Todd back. That's what Todd's two best friends in high school said to him on spring break in his senior year. They sat Todd down on a Friday night. They looked at him square in the eyes and said, we want the old version of you back. You see, in high school, Todd was a rebel. He was a real troublemaker, yet something happened. During Todd's junior year in high school, Todd put his faith in Jesus Christ, and God began to do something radical in Todd from the inside out. All of a sudden, Todd's behavior had changed. He had, he had new affections. He had new desires. He was now walking in righteousness, and Todd wasn't the only one who noticed Todd's friends began to notice as well. And you know what? They didn't like it. (laughs) They wanted the old Todd back. They wanted the old Todd to run with them in the same kinds of things that Todd did before he became a Christian. Now, Put yourself in Todd's shoes for a moment. Your your two best friends sit you down and they look you square in the eyes and they say, we we don't like what we're seeing. We want want the old version of you back. How would you respond? What would you do if your closest friends began to pressure you back into sinful patterns, sinful patterns you delighted in before God saved you in Jesus Christ. Perhaps let me ask you this. What would you do if, if they began to mistreat you? Because you have chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you do if you were in Todd's shoes. Or, or, or better stated, how have you responded? Because my guess is, at, at some point in your life, if you hear this morning, if, if you can hear my words, and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have had, on some sliding scale, some similar experience to Todd. Because, you see, following Jesus comes with a cost. Jesus himself clearly taught this, did he not? And often that cost is the loss of relationships, be it friends or family. And and oftentimes not just loss, but even in the case of Todd, mistreatment. You see, when when we experience such pressure, when, when we experience such mistreatment, we can be tempted to respond in two ways. We can be tempted to either 
turn back from our commitment to Christ or turn down our commitment to Christ. When when the, the cost of following Jesus manifests itself in the loss of relationship or the mistreatment of others, we can either turn back our commitment to Christ or turn it down. Have you ever experienced that temptation? Have you ever felt that pull before? You've put your faith in Christ. You want to honor Him. You want to live a certain way. But man, the pressure, the mistreatment to turn away from that is strong. Well, if you've ever experienced that temptation, know you're not alone. For this was the same temptation the original readers of Hebrews experienced. Last week we began a new series through the New Testament book of Hebrews. And as we noted last week, this book, it's really, you, you could really classify it as a sermon. A sermon that focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ so that Christians would be anchored in their faith. And what you have to know is that just a cursory reading of the book of Hebrews reveals that the original readers of this letter experienced, please hear me, various pressures. Various pressures to lure them away from their commitment to Christ. Like many of us today, these Christian believers, they suffered rejection by family members. We see this in chapter 13. Others of them experienced, for their faith in Jesus Christ, public shame. We see this in chapter 10. They also suffered the loss of property and freedom as well as the threat of martyrdom. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were tempted to turn back from their commitment to Christ or to turn down their commitment to Christ. Indeed, as we're about to see in the weeks to come, one of the strongest pressures they faced, especially amongst the Jewish believers, was to return to the visible sanctuary, right? and its liturgy, and in so do, abandon their confession that Christ's supremacy as the eternal high priest was sufficient and enough to save them. So here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. And that is, what message do you need? What message do I need when we are tempted to turn back from our commitment to Christ or to turn down our commitment to Christ? What message do we need to hear? Well, I believe the author answers that question for us in our text this morning. If you would, please turn within your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. That's page 1001 in that paperback Bible. Last week we looked at the first four verses. This morning we're going to work through 
beginning in verse 5 through the first part of chapter 2. And what you're going to notice is that in our passage this morning, the preacher, he, he begins by demonstrating from the Old Testament why Jesus is superior to angels. Now, if that sounds odd to you right now, don't worry, for you'll quickly see why the preacher does this. I, am, I trust you're going to be able to see this as we work our way through this text. In fact, the, the preacher, he actually strings together a series of seven quotations from the Old Testament to make his case. In fact, I'm, I'm going to say that what we see here in the entire book of Hebrews is we, it's almost a master class on communication. This this author is a master communicator. For, for you know what communication method he employs in our text this morning to effectively communicate his point as well as to engage the listener? He uses questions. He doesn't lecture us. He asks questions. And he drops in truth to engage us and to make his point. So, so notice how he begins. Let's pick things up here. Chapter 1, verse 5. If you haven't already turned there with me in your Bibles, and as you're turning there, that will give my, my old eyes time to adjust. Okay, here we go. All right. So he's, the author of Hebrews, he's now speaking about Jesus. And he asked some questions. And here's what he asked. And again, the whole point is to show that Jesus is superior to angels. He says, verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And, and you know what the answer is to those first four questions? What's the answer? None. God has never said such things to angels. But he has to Jesus. To Jesus, God has given the name Son. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was adopted into divine sonship. He's always been the eternal Son of God. What these Old Testament citations are communicating, the first two here that are listed as they're communicating that Jesus is, and he rather fulfills the messianic promises of the Davidic covenant. Let me explain. The first Old Testament citation there in verse 5 is from Psalm 2, Psalm 2-7. That psalm states, we could summarize it, that the Davidic king, the one who's going to come from the line of David, he will inherit the nations and rule over the entire world. The second citation here is from 2 Samuel 7.14. You'll, you'll recall that in that passage, God promised to be a father to David's royal descendant, who in turn would be a son to God and build God's house. Indeed, I don't know if you'll recall this, but in our time of when we went through 2 Samuel, we learned that in 2 Samuel 7, all of God's saving promises, all of God's saving promises would come to pass 
through a son of David, a greater son of David, the Davidic king. And the author of Hebrews is saying, as he cites these two verses, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that king. But that's not all that the author is saying with these citations. Consider what we learn next about Jesus in verses 6 through 9. He says this, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, firstborn, that's a title of supremacy. He's referring to Jesus. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, notice the contrast, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Notice what the author is saying here, especially in verse 6. Who's supposed to worship who? Right? Is Jesus to worship the angels? No, it's the angels who are to worship the Son, right? In verse 6, that's a citation from Deuteronomy 3243. And in the original context, you know what that passage is all about? This is fascinating. It's all about angels bowing down in worship to Yahweh. Now notice what the preacher does here in verse 6. He says that the person in Deuteronomy 32:43 is Jesus. Headline, Jesus is the one to be worshipped, not angels. Indeed, Angels, the author wants us to see, are servants, aren't they? For that's the point of verse 7. They are servants in God's court. Yet while angels might be around the throne of God, it's only the Son who sits on the throne. And this is what the preacher is getting at in verses 8 through 9. This is a quote from Psalm 45. And that's, it's a, that psalm, it extols, again, the Davidic king. If we have to understand, from all the way back in Genesis, God has been making saving promises of how he's going to save and redeem sinful humanity. And as we see, as the, the Bible unfolds, all those promises are going to go through a Davidic king. And that's what Psalm 45 extols, the Davidic king. And Jesus, Jesus is not only the true Davidic king who is to be worshipped, He's the creator of all whom God has given supreme rule. Because look at what he then says now in verses 10 through 14. Again, speaking of the Son. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. He's saying this Son was the agent of creation. And then notice what we see about there's a creator Creature distinction, referring to the creation, they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? 
until I make your enemies a footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, let me just again point out this sharp creator-creature distinction in verse 10. How many of you have a, an old shirt that your spouse won't let you wear, throw away, right? Or, or a jersey or a sweatshirt, right? Our clothes, they roll up, they, they fade away. Not the sun. He's the eternal son of God. I love that phrase. Uh, his years will have no end. Right? But not only that, this son will be forever enthroned. For notice, in verse 13... Have your eyes fall there. In verse 13, this chain of Old Testament citations that the author uses, it climaxes with this one, which is a citation of Psalm 110. If you're the note-taking type, you need to write this down. This psalm plays a significant role in the book of Hebrews. When we read Psalm 110... We learn it's about David's greater son, the Messiah. And in the Gospels, Jesus applied that very verse, which is quoted here in verse 13, to himself. And Jesus argues that in Psalm 110, when David says, The Lord said to my Lord, David must be prophetically ascribing deity to both God himself and David's messianic Lord. So here the author emphasizes the exaltation of the Son to sit at the right hand of God, the position of privilege and power. So you see, he's comparing and contrasting what God says and who his Son is versus the angels. Unless we have any doubt about the superiority of Jesus to the angels, what does the preacher say there in verse 14? I love it. He sums it all up for us. He reminds us that they are simply ministering spirits. Okay? Now, much more could be said. We could do a deep dive into these quotations and citations, but the, which is great, but the author is moving towards something. He's mentioning these things to move towards something. I mean, what, what's the point of him taking the time to talk about why Jesus is greater than the angels? Why does he want us to know that Jesus is the true Davidic king to whom all God's saving promises are going to, going to come to pass? Well, he tells us in the very next verse. Notice what he says now here in chapter 2. He says, therefore, okay, so building on everything I've just explained about Jesus, he says, therefore, what does he say? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. This is what Todd needed to hear. This is what you and I need to hear. When the temptation comes to turn back from our commitment to Christ or to turn down our commitment to Christ, we need to heed these words when the author says, pay close attention to what you have heard, namely what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the remedy to keep one from drifting. He goes on, verse 2, For since the message declared by angels... Ah, angels. Have we been talking about angels? Yes. For the, since the message declared by angels 
proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, like God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Uh, one day an old man was uh, casually walking along a country lane with his dog and his mule when suddenly a speeding pickup truck careened around the corner knocking the man, the dog, and the mule into a ditch. Well, the man decided to sue the driver of the truck seeking to recoup the cost of the damages. And while the, the man was on the stand... The counsel for the defense cross-examined the man by asking him a simple question. He said, hey, I want you to answer yes or no to the following question. Just a simple yes or no. He says, here's the question. Did you or did you not say at the time of the accident that you were, quote, perfectly fine? The old man said, well, well me and my dog and my mule were walking. Ah, 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 no. The lawyer said, said, stop. He said, I, I asked you, tell me yes or no. Did you say you were perfectly fine at the time of the accident? Well, what you have to understand is that me and my dog, no, no, uh, objection, honor. And this time the, the defense lawyer, he looks over at the judge and he says, your honor, the man is not answering the question. Would you please insist that he answer the question? And the judge said, well, he obviously wants to tell us something. Let him speak. So the man spoke. He said, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road when this truck came around the corner way too fast and it knocked us into the ditch. The driver stopped, got out of his truck, and when he saw that my dog was badly injured, he went back into his truck, got his rifle, and he shot it. He then saw that my mule had broken his leg and was lame. So he shot it too. And then he looked at me and he said, how are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> that old man had something to say, didn't he? But was the defense attorney willing to listen? Was he? No. The book of Hebrews begins by telling us that God has something to say. Doesn't it? Indeed, do you remember what we learned last week? The book of Hebrews begins with the preacher making this statement. This is what we learned last week. That God has spoken definitively in His Son. In the past, God spoke at many times and in many ways by the prophets. But now in these last days... God has spoken to us definitively in His Son. Jesus, as we looked at last week, is God's final prophet, perfect priest, and ultimate king. 
Well, now here in chapter 2, verse 1, you know what we get? We get the very first imperative of the entire book. The preacher exhorts us to do something for the very first time. And you know what it is he calls us to do? He begins by saying God has spoken definitively in his son. And here's the very first exhortation. He tells us, heed what you have heard. Heed what you have heard. That is, pay careful attention, the preacher says, to Jesus. Unlike that defense attorney who wasn't willing to listen to an old man, we as God's people are called to listen very carefully to our God. He begins by saying, God has spoken, and the first thing he exhorts us to do is, heed what you have heard. So you know what this means? It means we're to give careful thought and consideration to God's final word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, I want to suggest to you it means we ought to pay careful attention to what God has said about His Son, shouldn't we? And you know what God most says loudly about His Son in the book of Hebrews? He says that Jesus is the divine Son, our perfect high priest in sacrifice, who can, can cleanse sinners and restore us in our relationship with God. That defense attorney, he needed to hear that old man's story to effectively represent his client. So why should you and I listen to what God has spoken concerning his son? Why should you and I heed what we've heard about Jesus and the salvation he gives his own? Well, this is actually the very question that the preacher sets out to answer. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, the preacher gives three compelling reasons why we ought to pay close attention to Jesus, why we ought to heed what we've heard. And the first reason is this, and that's because it prevents drifting. Because notice what he clearly states there in verse 2. He says, therefore, Jesus is greater than the angels. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know, Basil made, made the joke, we as a church were 15 years old, right? Next year we're going to start driving, right? Okay. And uh, for those of you that drive, tell me, what sound do you hear if you begin to drift outside to the right side of the line? Hopefully you don't hear much. It's just, you know, you know what, what do you tend to hear if you just drift a little bit outside of the line? You hear a rumble sound. Exactly. Phil nailed it. Phil nailed it. You hear a rumble sound. And, and you know what produces that sound? Rumble strips. What a good name, right? Rumble strips. And you know what the point of a rumble strip is, right? They are there, the rumble strips, they're there to get you to pay attention to the road. Well, faith, in many ways, this passage is a rumble strip. It's designed to remind you to pay attention to Jesus. 
For as the author makes clear, truly, that truly is the remedy to prevent a person from drifting. That truly is the remedy to prevent a person from turning back from their commitments to Christ or to turn down their commitments to Christ. Focus on Jesus. Heed what you've heard. The preacher wants us to heed what we've heard so that we don't drift away. So if I could ask you, what would it look like in your life to pay close attention to Jesus? Could I make some suggestions? I think to heed what you have heard, to give close attention to Jesus, is first, it's to have the Lord Jesus Christ in your thoughts. Based on what is revealed about him in God's word, you consider who he is, what he has done for you, as well as what he wants of you. As you go about your day, throughout your day, your chief concern is how, how can I please my Lord and Master? There are many other things that we'll, we'll get to as we work our way through book of Hebrews, but one other thing that I would suggest is that you do what we see later on in the book of Hebrews, and that is you'd make gathering with God's people a priority. To heed what you have heard, to, to pay close attention to Jesus, one of the means that God has given us to, to do that is to faithfully gather with God's people. So heed what you've heard, number one, so that you don't drift. It prevents drifting. But second, heed what you've heard because it warns of judgment. Notice what we see there in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And you know what the answer is? How shall we escape? We won't if we neglect. Heed what you've heard because it prevents drifting and it warns of judgment. Uh, who can tell me what this is? Does anybody know what this is? What? It's a whistle. I've heard something. It's a dog whistle. It's a silent dog whistle. I don't know if any of you have one of these. Tell me. Uh, don't have to say it out loud, but think with me. Why are they called silent dog whistles? They are called that because they produce a frequency that only dogs can hear, right? In fact, one of the signs that an animal is a dog is that it hears that pitch, right? In John 10, 27, Jesus describes Christians, thankfully not as dogs, but as what? Well, what does Jesus describe Christians as in John 10? Do you remember? Sheep, right? And just like with the dog whistle, one of the signs 
that you are a sheep, that you belong to Christ, is that you hear not a whistle, but his voice and you obey. I mean, Jesus makes this very plain. He says this in John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is to say, Christians are not spiritually deaf. The sheep hear his voice in faith. Sometimes the word that Christ speaks to his sheep is a word of warning. And that's precisely what we see in this text. Notice what the preacher does. In this passage, as every person who's written on Hebrews points out, he argues from the lesser to the greater. And what's the lesser? The lesser are angels and the old covenant. For notice again, the preacher once again mentions angels. And now let's ask the question, why is this? What, what's his deal, man? What is, why is the author of Hebrews talking so much about angels? Is he talking about angels even more later on? Is, is he fascinated with angels? Were, were the original readers just entranced by the mystery of angels? And the answer is no. The reason why he takes several verses at the end of chapter 1 to display why Jesus is superior to the angels is because in the Old Testament we learn that angels served as intermediaries in the giving of God's law. Indeed, if you're the note-taking type, Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19 make it very clear that the message mediated by angels was the Mosaic law. And notice what the author of Hebrews says about this message delivered by the angels. He says that everything that God communicated through the angels was absolutely reliable. It was perfect and trustworthy. But, but then notice, notice what happened to those who disobeyed God's law or transgressed his commands? How, what does the end of verse 2 state? What did those people receive? They received just retribution, right? So God communicated, gave his law through the angels. And it was such a good law that, that those who broke it, they received judgment. That, well, the author is saying that was then. That's the lesser. The lesser is God's old covenant mediated through the angels. Yet please note this mediated word was still so great that every neglect and rejection of it was punishable with a just recompense. But now, in Jesus Christ, something greater has come. And you know what that is? In Jesus, God has not spoken to us through angels, but He's spoken to us unmediated through His Son. The very son the author of Hebrews has gone out of his way to prove is greater than the angels. So, so, so here's the point the preacher is getting at. If there was such a severe retribution from God for violating the terms of a lesser covenant mediated by angels, 
what hope does one have in escaping the judgment of neglecting a greater covenant brought to us by God's very Son? And you know what the answer is? You know what hope you have for escaping this judgment? None. John Calvin captures the weight of this passage as well. And and remember, the preacher is preaching to Christians. When he's talking about neglecting the salvation, it's the salvation they have received. John Calvin captures the, the weight of this passage while he writes this. It is not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace grace which is offered in it. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. So do you see? You know what's at stake at drifting away? You know what's at stake at neglecting the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ? Please hear me. Your eternal destiny. And again, the preacher is giving this warning to Christians. So, what are we to make of this warning? Well, to be sure, the Bible teaches that when God saves a person, they can never lose his or her salvation. Once, once a person has been regenerated by the work of God through the work of the Spirit, once they've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. We were taught this in John 10, 28. I love what Jesus says there, that he gives his own eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of his hand. Amen? Or think of Philippians 1, 6, Right? Paul writes, he who began a good work will be faithful to what? To complete it. Or again, Romans 8, 39, where we read that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus. So please hear me. Scripture boldly announces and teaches that those who belong to Jesus will persevere in the faith to the very end. That's a gospel promise. Yet faith, one of the means that God uses to help Christians persevere till the end, are the warning passages in Scripture. What I mean is, God promises that Christians will persevere till the end. God's promise, rather, that Christians will persevere to the end does not come to pass apart from His warnings, but through them. Right? God's warnings are part of his saving. We could put it this way. The sheep hear the warning from their great shepherd and they obey accordingly. What's that? My shepherd is saying, don't go there. My shepherd is saying, stay here. 
My shepherd is saying, walk this direction. The sheep hear that warning and they obey. And our text this morning, I want to say, is one such warning. It's intended by God to help us fight the good fight of faith to persevere to the end. So what I want to do is I just want to give a a biblical example that helps illustrate this point. And I think it will will be helpful for us because, look, this is one of many warning passages we're going to encounter in the book of Hebrews. And we need to understand right now, how how are we to understand this? So think for a moment about the shipwreck story in Acts 27. In that passage, we learn that a storm struck with, with such fury that all in the boat, they despaired living for their lives. However, Paul was on that ship. And while he was on the ship, he received a word from the Lord that every single person on that ship, though the storm has just drunk, he got a word that every single person on that ship would be saved, meaning every single person's life would be preserved. That word that all aboard the ship would live was a divine promise pledging safety for all. Now, what would you do in that situation? The storm's coming. It's terrible. Looks like we're going to die. But God has spoken to Paul. Everyone's going to make it to the end. Some might be inclined to relax and take it easy after receiving such a promise. But that's not what Paul did. Paul, on the other hand, did not think that such a promise ruled out the need for admonishments and warnings. You know why I say that? Because this becomes clear as you read the rest of the narrative. For when the sailors tried to lower the lifeboat and escape the ship... You know what Paul did? Paul responded by warning them. Warning the centurion that if the sailors left the ship, the lives on board would not be preserved. Now let's think about this for a moment. Why would Paul even bother to admonish the centurion about the scheme of the sailors? Because after all, he'd already received a divine promise from an angel that everyone on the boat would escape with their lives. So why would Paul give a warning? Well, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, in this excellent book, Run to Win the Prize, makes this helpful observation on this passage. He writes this. He says, Paul did not reason the way many of us do today. God has promised that the lives of all will be saved. Therefore, any warning is super- superfluous. This is another, you're seeing in real time another opportunity where God is humbling me. Aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad? That word. Anyway. (laughs) No, the urgent warning was the very means by which the promise was secured. The promise did not come to pass apart from the warning, but through it. And then he says this. This same approach should be applied to the promises and threats in the scriptures regarding our salvation. It is by means of taking the warning seriously that the promise of our salvation is secured. And we see this dynamic in Hebrews 2. So we could summarize in this way for the note-taking type. 
God's promise that Christians will persevere to the end does not come to pass apart from his warnings, but through him. God's warning is part of his saving. Here's why. If you're a sheep, you hear it. If you're a sheep, you hear it and you obey. So, so what's the application? So what we've been driving at this whole time, pay attention to Jesus. As the author will state later, don't harden your heart with sin. This is, this is why we've, we've mentioned before, and, I, and really the New Testament goes out of its way to make this point. The Christian life is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. Right? We, Jesus does all the work to save us, amen? And, and the means that he uses, our God not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And one of the means he uses to get us to the end are the warning passages. So let us take them seriously and pay attention. Pay attention to Jesus. And then lastly, heed what you've heard because it proceeds from the Lord. It proceeds from the Lord. It prevents us from drifting. We got this, this warning here. And again, you know, he's talking about angels. They're less than. We have this greater in Jesus. And then notice what he says here in verse 3. He says, For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we turn back our commitment to Christ, if we turn down our commitment to Christ, if we turn from him, he talks about this message that we're to heed. It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And what I want to do, I just want to draw your attention to the three main verbs in these verses. Notice first, that this message was declared by Jesus himself. Right? The angels mediated the law, but Jesus is more than a mediator of the gospel. He is the divine son. He's also the incarnate son, which makes his communication infinitely superior to that of the angels. So it was declared. Second, this message was attested or confirmed by those who heard it. Now, we may not think of it often, but the New Testament consistently teaches the profound theological importance of the testimonies of the apostles to the person and work of Christ. Look at me. We don't believe in myths and legends about Jesus. The message of the gospel has come down to us from the credible eyewitness testimony of the apostles. That's what he's getting at there in that phrase in verse 3 when it says, it was attested to us by those who heard. But then third note also, God bore witness to this message. God's witness came through miracles performed alongside the gospel's proclamation confirming it. We see this in, in the gospels. 
The gifts of the Spirit refers not just to the distribution of the spiritual gifts, but to all the works of the Spirit, miracles, signs, and wonders. So notice there's actually, when you consider the work of the Spirit, there's a fourfold concert of witnesses. The Lord Jesus, His apostles, God the Father testifying through miracles, and the Holy Spirit empowering the church. These all certify that the message of salvation certifies the message of salvation announced in these last days. And the question is, what more do you need to heed this word? It prevents drifting, it warns of judgment, and it comes from the Lord. Why would you not heed it? Why would you not listen to it? Why would you not pay careful attention? Faith, our preacher has displayed the majesty of the Son in order to guard our hearts against distractions that would deflect our grace from Jesus. So that like Todd, like others, when tempted to turn back our commitment on Christ or to turn down our commitment to Christ, we wouldn't. Because we have a salvation that's far greater than anything the the angels announced. Amen? So let's fix our gaze on Christ. Let's pray.